In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, God willing, today we're going to continue studying from chapter 2 of the epistle of Second Timothy, um, St. Paul writing to Timothy. Um, in chapter 1, um, St. Paul had wrote about various struggles that Timothy should prepare himself and expect to experience in the ministry, and how to prepare for that, and how to remain vigilant and persevere in the midst of trials. Um, and also he spoke about how he should be ordaining um, others, priests, to serve with him and to help him and to teaching um, the people. So he spoke about like the little organizational structure and how is it he needs to, he can't do everything by himself. He has to um, include other people in the service as well. Um, so God willing, today we're going to continue um, with uh, We covered just chapter one or chapter. We finished chapter two, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Sounds good. Um, so, God willing, today we're going to study chapter three. I don't know what I said, but we're going to study chapter three. Um, so he says, um, "But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come." So he's speaking about, of course, you know, in the scripture, whenever Christ is speaking about the end times, or the scripture speaks about the last days. It's speaking about the era that, like that era. It's not. It's not all only speaking about like literally the end of the world, but it's speaking about that this is like the the, the, the when you consider all of like human history from the creation, um, throughout all of the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah. Like this is now the age, the end of the age, right? And 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 some people believe that even at the time at that time, like the Thessalonians, they believe that at that time was actually going to be the end of the world, and people would actually stop work they um, just wait waiting for the end of the world to come um, but of course um, it, it was not yet but we can see the signs um, that here St. Paul is speaking to St. Timothy about uh, in uh, th that he's going to say here in the next verse but he's saying in the last days perilous times will, will, will come and we're definitely living in these days right so this isn't speaking about something that's still going to happen but maybe things will continue to get worse maybe we'll see more and more um, the manifestation of the things that he's going to speak about, but definitely we are we are in these days, um, and the work of salvation that Christ came to to perform and to complete is already done. Meaning Christ came already as incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. Like the work of salvation is done. It is now up to each person who we find ourselves in the midst of these last days and these perilous times that we look to Christ and we receive from Him this gift of salvation and accept it from his hand and in faith in him and in following through with what he has called us um, to do. And one of the reasons that the times that are to come are so perilous is because there is so much deception. Um, there's so much distraction. There's so many things that keep people from even caring at all that we are living in the last days or, or caring at all about what is it that's happening in the world around us and what does it mean for us, for the church, for, for, for people. Um, you know, when you think about like one of the ways that the devil deceives people um, that is maybe progressively getting worse and worse is through technology, for instance. Um, technology in itself is not evil, it's a tool, um, but it can be used in a very evil way. It can also be used in a good way. But um, it's very easy a as, you know, for people to be tempted through the use of technology to pursue, uh, to pursue evil, to disseminate lies, slander, um, all kinds of things that, you know, problems that we see. Christ actually said, uh, when he was speaking about the end times in Matthew chapter 24, he said, And because, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. 
because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will, will grow cold. It's kind of like because there is so much lawlessness, because there is so much sin and wickedness in the world that like everyone has be becomes desensitized to it, right? We no longer have strong desire. We feel like um, everyone is just kind of going with the flow. When society was much more um, godly, God-centered, and God-fearing, um, then as a society as a whole, then maybe we could be indignant towards sin or we would orient ourselves with God against evil as a, as a society, whereas now evil is celebrated, right? E evil is, is celebrated. People no longer care about the truth or following God's commandments. They just care about like pleasing themselves and, and pursuing their own will. Um, and so this is why we, we say that the love of many will grow cold. And this is also the time here that St. Paul is speaking about to St. Timothy, these perilous times at the end. So he's going to speak now in more detail about what exactly is going to happen uh, at these last times. So he says, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despiser, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. So here are all of the characteristics that he mentions, and I'm just going to briefly touch on each one of these. Um, he said these are the characteristics of the end, the end times. What is What are people going to be? So the first one is lovers of themselves. So, okay, putting putting myself first, not willing to sacrifice for the other. Um, I don't know what, what, what I was reading, something uh, about, like, that there was some social media post about a man that, posted like an empathetic response to a to another person about something and he said this is a viral response because this man was empathetic and it, it occurred to me like okay now in our age when someone is actually empathetic or kind to another person that is considered viral like like it's so rare to find people who are kind that when someone actually posts something that is kind it like gets the attention of everyone you know like it used to be the case that kindness was like the default and the thing that would get your attention would be like the wickedness. Now the wickedness is the default, and you don't really pay attention to the wickedness anymore because it's what you expect. You expect corruption and selfishness from everyone, and it's only when you s you don't see it then that's what catches your attention. Be like, wow, look, that person was actually like said something good, you know. Um, so selfishness, right? Um, not willing to sacrifice for another. Lovers of money, of course. Money becomes a god and the goal of life for so many people, especially in um, in the West, where um, even though maybe our basic needs are met, but we still desire more, and we're not content with what it is that we have. We're always desiring more, more, more. Um, boasters, like boasting about who I am, boasting about my accomplishment, um, also not recognizing that like the, the gifts that I have come from God instead of coming from myself. Again, this is an idea of removing God from, from, from the equation. And really all of these are about removing God. Right, lovers of money again. Like when God says you can't serve both God and Mammon, so it's, it's it's the removal of God. It's it's choosing something else to be God instead of Him. Right, the dismantling of God. Right, in in each person, um, proud. Of course, like having you know, not just having like a high opinion of myself, but feeling that I am sufficient in myself and that I'm not in need of anything. Of course, the whole message of salvation is predicated on the idea that we are not sufficient. Like when we use the word salvation, it means that we are, um, we are dying, or we are drowning, or we are failing, or we are in some way in danger. 
and we are in need of someone else to come and save us. So when you go to people who are um, proud in this way, they feel like I am in no need of salvation. I am not in need of anyone to save me because I am sufficient of in myself. So the more that someone is proud, the less they are going to be open to the idea that they are in need of, of God in their life. Again, the removal of God. Um, blasphemer, right? So again, what is blaspheming? Blaspheming is like taking the name of God and the, the person of God and, and making it to be a common thing or to curse him or to use his name in vain or to... In, in, in every way to to curse and disrespect the concept of God himself again we, we don't we don't need him we don't believe in him so what's what's wrong with speaking about him in a blasphemous way right because because they don't even believe that he exists um, and this one is interesting that in my mind kind of sticks out among all of this list right because you can l read all of this list and you can kind of identify it with like big problems in society um, but then when you think disobedient to parents, right? Like it, 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 it sounds like at first when you read it, it doesn't sound like, it sounds like, like if there's going to be one of these that kind of sticks out as being different from the rest, maybe you think disobedient to parents is the, is the one. Why? Because again, we maybe have been so conditioned to consider that disobedience to parents is something so normal, like something that's just accepted. Um, we, we, we look at the kids and, you know, the younger generations uh, like middle school or high school kids, and we s we assume that they're going to be disobedient to parents. And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's just how teenagers are. They're rebellious, and, you know, they don't listen and do all that. Well, you know, if you, if, if, you, if you rewind back to how things used to be a long time ago, you know, like I think like Origen, who was like the dean of Alexandria when he was 18 years old, you know, like like the the the, the standard that we had placed for young people a long time ago was very different than the standard that we place now. Actually, in the Old Testament, it says that uh, a child who is disobedient to his parents should be stoned. You know, if you can consider how serious disobedience to parents was, right? And the reasons are because parents are supposed to be the ones who guide the child from all of the temptations and deceptions and, 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 and the wrong paths that they could potentially walk in their life to the right one. So if you want to have someone who grows up to be kind of godly, right, then you need the parents, and you need the child to listen to the parents. I mean, the parents were almost kind of like a God figure. Obviously not God themselves, but they represented God in the life of the child, right? Because because when when the child is to learn what is right and wrong, who are they going to learn it from? They're going to learn it from their parents. When, when the child is going to receive good things, who are, who are they going to receive it from? The parents. Every good thing came from the parents, Every discipline came from the parents. Every teaching came from the parents. All the love came from the parents. So in that sense, the parents were modeling God to the child, and the child was expected to submit. Because if the child could not submit to the parents who are physically present and doing all these good things for the kid, how is the child going to submit to God whom he cannot see? Right. So so in, in this way, the, the idea of being submit submitting to the parents and obedient to the parents, something very, very critical and here he's speaking about things at a societal level, right? Like all these things, he says, because in the last days, perilous times will come. And here are all the characteristics of how all society is going to be. And one of them is disobedient to parents. So it's not something that we should minimize. And also, we shouldn't be so quick to normalize the bad behavior of young people and say, well, that's just how they are. No, they're, they're that way because we made them that way as a society. We, we created them to be that way by by not raising them right, right? That's why they are the way. Now, it's not like genetic. It's not like they are genetically disposed to be this way, 
right? No, we, we allowed them to be this way. We encourage them to be this way because of the, the life that, you know, we have created for them because of the social media that we have created for them because of the lack of, you know, attention that we have given to them. So in that way, this idea of being disobedient to parents is, is that's why it's on this list. That's why it is perilous. And that's why it's something that simply we cannot ignore. Yes. I just, it's just a thought. It's not a question, but it's just a, it's funny that we're talking about this because one, whenever I would read this before, I would think that it mean it means that the kids are gonna become disobedient to parents, and that's the problem. But what you're saying is like, it's interesting that it's not just that the kids become disobedient; it's that the, it's society is disobedient to pa society demonizes parents. Yes, it's like a different way to think about it than than what I would originally have thought that this was saying. Yeah, I mean, I think both are true, right? Both things are true. Um, but but really, everything here is speaking about, like, not just at the level of the individual, right? Um, unthankful, yes. <laughs> unthankful, okay? So unthankfulness is all about, like, coveting. Like, we are, we are, we are not thankful for what we have, and we always want more. And this also ties into the idea of entitlement, right? We, we are entitled. We feel like we deserve more. And no matter how much we receive, we feel like we are deserving of more. So, again, that very much categorizes our society, right? Everyone is, feels like they are entitled to more. They're not thankful for what they have. When they don't receive what they think they deserve or their rights are violated, they, you know, will, will very quickly protest and, and demand what 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 they think that they deserve. But again, not just trying to get what they think they deserve with kind of a peaceful spirit, but with this very entitled and, and unthankful spirit. Um, unholy, living contrary to God's commandments. Again, we are ejecting God from everything, right? Like un unthankfulness, we are not thanking God who's the one who brings us all the good things that we should be thankful for. So that's why we're not thankful because for us, God doesn't exist. Unholy, we are not willing to submit to God's commandments, to God's way of telling us how we should live because we are rejecting him. We are, we are saying we will define for ourselves what is holiness, right? Like I will define for myself what is good, what is morality, what, what I think is, is right and wrong, and I reject God's definition of morality. What, it, what God says is right and wrong, I reject it, okay? Um, unloving, again, we are... We are we are placing ourselves to be first. Like, again, like what he says, lovers of themselves. Um, each person is loving themselves, unloving to other people. Even thinking that loving others is almost like uh, a sign of weakness. You know, like a sign of weakness. Like when we speak about loving your enemy, right? Loving our enemy almost seems like to society as being like a kind of weakness. Like, no, I want to I, I wanna retaliate against my enemy, which is a show of strength, right? So that I can um, not be a victim of such a person. Right, so I need to show them, and they need to. I need to take revenge on them for what is it they have done, right? But definitely, that's not the Christian way, right? That we are called to love our enemies. So, but again, this becomes the mantra of the new age, right? The age that we are in, unforgiving, right? If you do something to me, then I will hold it against you for the rest of your life, and I completely ignore the fact that I also am a sinner, that I also um, hurt others by my actions, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Right. So so again, God, like God is, is calling us to forgive one another, but I don't see the reason to um, anyone hurts me. And this is why uh, in our society also relationships have broken down to such a degree. 
you know, y one of the things that characterizes our our our, our society and our, and our modern day generations is um, relationships have been completely broken. Every kind of relationship you can think of is broken. Um, the relationship between parents and children is broken. Even when you have children living with families, maybe the parents don't spend enough time with the kids, and the parent and the kids don't submit to the parents. Um, and and families are broken, like in, in like through divorce, through um, the redefinition of what a family even is. Um, and and ch children are not even living in one home, but they're li living in multiple homes. Um, relationship between siblings, relationships between friends, like everything has been broken, right? Because God has been removed from society. So there is there is unlovingness, there's unforgiveness. Slanderers, okay? Um, speaking badly about each other, attacking one another, very common, like very, very common. In fact, like you don't read any news article, for instance, that doesn't include any, some kind of slander, uh, some kind of bad speaking about another person. When was the last time you read like in the news someone speaking good about another person? And if they are speaking good about them, they're, they're speaking good about them for bad reasons. Like they're promoting things that are wrong. Uh, like elevating them for for false reasons instead of uh, instead of for, for good reasons, we're slandering one another, without self control, and self control is something that, of course, in Christianity we teach because it helps us to control our our thoughts, control our actions, uh, keeps us from falling into sin, and this is a means of godliness and a means of us being in communion with God is to not follow the fleshly desires. Of course, in the world. Right, there is no concept. Like the only reason that you would have self-control in the world is because you want to be successful. Meaning, like I need to be self-controlled in my studying so I can pass a test. I need to be self-controlled so I can get a good job and I can have you know some good thing. But self-control in, in the like from the perspective of actually like having control of my thoughts, having control of my actions, of of submitting myself to God. This is something, of course, that is not is not promoted in society today. Brutal like violent and aggressive and hateful. Of course, we see that as well. Despiser, despisers of good, um, attacking those who try to do good. At like, for instance, when Christianity is attacked, like when we are promoting good, um, this is actually like, why, why is it that Christi Christians are being attacked for, for trying to do good in the world? We are, we are despised. We are called to be hateful. Um, we are called to be judging of others. Um, anything that is good is despised and replaced with what is evil. I mean, even when, you, like, I mean, we all talk about, you know, like, for instance, like, children's cartoons and children's shows, right? There are plenty of things that you can teach children that are good, that would be considered um, acceptable by everyone as being good, like good principles. Like, we want to teach children how to share. We want to teach children how to be kind. We want to teach children, like, all these things. But then you have all these different kinds of shows that are not promoting what are good, but are promoting what is frivolous, promoting what is what is wrong, like, how the number of the amount of like demonic influences that are now being introduced into children's shows, there, there, there really is. I don't. Was it here that I was mentioning to you about, or was it the Harvest meeting where I was talking about? There was a, there's like a cartoon that was released in Germany, uh, f under Disney for like like a girl who's impregnated by the devil, you know, like, uh, why, <laughs> like like is is that the only thing that can is, that can be entertaining to kids, um, is a show like that? So despising what is good. Traitors, right? No loyalty, um, no affiliation with the group or feeling like I care about the success of the group. It's more like I care only about my own success at the expense of the group, right? 
I am I'm willing to betray, betray other people, betray my family, betray my spouse, betray my close friends for the sake of my own self-interest. Headstrong, self-willed, stubborn, um, not willing to yield, not willing to listen, not willing to be corrected. Not, like if somebody tries to correct me, my reaction is just defensiveness. I'm not willing to listen to anything you have to say to me. I'm always just attacking back. I don't want to accept the fact that maybe I am wrong or that there is another way that is maybe better than my way. Haughty, which is like arrogance, um, believing myself to be better than others. And then finally, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, uh, meaning I, I, leave, I live to please myself. I don't live to please God. I don't live to sacrifice or to serve anyone. I live only for my own pleasure. So this is just very briefly. I mean, you could have like a whole sermon about each one of these things. But this is what he is categorizing. And he's saying, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, that all these things are going to happen. And certainly we see this. And it's not to say that these things are new, but every generation, these things are more amplified. And the problem gets bigger and bigger because God is being rejected and ejected from society more and more and more. And that's really the common theme here is this is the ejection of God. Every one of these things is the ejection of God and the consequence of such, um, such a thing. Okay. Having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. Having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. So what is, what is a form of godliness? What does it mean? Okay. Like they have a good, they look righteous. Okay, they look righteous. Okay, so one one type of form of godliness could be the the people who, when we use the word godliness, to mean actually like looking sp like spiritual people, like followers of God. Okay, good. What else can it mean? Can it just mean like morally good people, but they don't believe in God? Yeah, so another thing it could mean is people who, like, maybe society would label them as quote-unquote good people, but they have no spiritual basis or foundation in what they do, right? So either way, right, it's an appearance of something, right? It's an appearance. So all those, all those characteristics, all those things that were just listed as being, like, fundamental real problems can be there even while they're not clearly visible from the outside and that goes to the idea of like deception like when the devil wants to deceive he doesn't come in an ugly form he comes in a, like a very attractive form a form that people like will be appealing to people right to gradually deceive people over time not a form that is objectionable now maybe nowadays it's like we literally have people with demonic symbols and demonic things symbols and things like that like that are clear because because the devil has been working for so long to get people so desensitized to him that now that when he presents himself as he is plainly he's still accepted right but it wasn't always the case right it was the case that like like he had to inject himself secretly into different things slowly eroding away at the the morality of the people to get them to accept him right so appearing from the outside like as godly or good but all these problems suffering from the inside. And when, when Christ was speaking to the Pharisees, he said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Because the Pharisees looked like they were godly people. 
they look like they were the teachers. They are the ones who promoted the word of God. They are the ones who, 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 who worked for the salvation of the people. But actually, that isn't at all what they were doing. They were secretly festering with all of these problems under the, under the surface, but they presented themselves in a way that would be acceptable to the people so that, that everyone would accept who they are. Okay, um, So in Christianity, we have to be very careful of what is it that we are trying to achieve. Right? It's easy for us sometimes to focus on the outward because the outward is what will, r will bring me praise or criticism. The outward is what how other people see me and if our attention is so much on the way I am seen by other people, right, then our focus will always be the outward. Um, but in Christianity, the focus should be the inward, right? Because Christ said to the Pharisees as well, he said, blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Meaning if you focus on the inside, then the outside will become clean. If you focus only on the outside, then you will become very, very good at hiding. Right, you'll become very good at pretending. You'll become very good at f at just focusing on how I am perceived by others rather than on the reality of who I am. But of course, the problem is is that God sees who I really am. God knows who I really am. He's not caring about the outward. The outward is not going to fool him, right? By by any means. So our focus should be to change, um, to change our focus to be on the inward. And that's part of the problem that society reached to the state that it's in is because they were only focusing on the outward rather than, than on the inward. Um, so then he says what? Having a form of godliness but denying its power. What does it mean that is denying its power? Denying the power of what? Yeah, like the denying the power of like true godliness. Right? Because we're just taking a form of godliness. We're like pretending. Pretending to be godly. Right? But but denying the power of what real godliness is. Because the question is, is how is it that if we are suffering from all of this long list of things that he is saying that are going to come at the end, how is it that we actually overcome those things? It is not through just outward work. Because sometimes people, even like when they come in confession, um, they, you know, confess the sins and they say, here are my sins. And I'm going to try harder, you know, to overcome them. It's like, okay, it's good that you can try harder. But are you going to actually succeed when you just try harder and that's all you're doing is trying harder? Right? There's a reason why you're suffering from it now. Like, there's a reason. Like, you've been suffering for this for, for 10 years. Okay? And you're still suffering from it. Are you going to try harder now? And suddenly when you try harder, you're gonna, it's going to work? Like, it ha if, it, if it was going to work, it would have worked by now. Right? But it didn't. It doesn't work. Right, so what is the power of godliness? It's actual godliness, like seeking truly, like the the presence of God in ourselves to cleanse, like what you know when Christ said to the Pharisee, "Cleanse the inside of the cup and dish." So we're saying, cleanse the inside through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and then the outside will be cleansed. But if you focus on just cleansing the outside in our own efforts, or even trying to cleanse the inside, but with our own efforts, then we will have very limited um, success, right? I mean, the don't underestimate the power of prayer in helping us overcome bad habits and addictions and problems and all kinds of things, right? Like that is the way to overcome these things. That's the way to overcome these things. It is not simply through trying more, 
right? Because trying more, again, we can be very limited in our, in our success. For of this sort are those who creep into households. Yes. Wait, go back. Mm. You didn't talk about the last line. From these people turn away. Yes. Meaning? Meaning from the people who are the, the like the hypocrites or the people who are focusing just on the out on the outward, stay away from these people. Is it only in reference to the small part or the whole list of things before? Everything. Yeah, everything. So, question. Mm. Like, I I'm assuming this is under some like because we want to protect ourselves and our souls, and all of that. But aren't we also called to be the ones in the world that are kind of bringing truth and light to people and how do you do that if we're like we're not going and meeting these people where they are so there's a difference between like you know you, 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 here he's saying guard yourselves from these people and guard yourself from this influence right guard yourself from it and at the same time we shouldn't assume or think or believe that we are able to immerse ourselves with such people all the time without being negatively influenced by them, right? That doesn't mean that we cannot be a good influence on them. Like there's a difference between being a good influence on someone versus this person is my best friend, right? Like, like I don't have to choose these people to be close associates of mine, to be close friends of mine. That doesn't mean that I don't interact with them. That doesn't mean that I can not be like you know, like when you are working in a job, for instance, and you're dealing with people, you're not even controlling who are the people that you're dealing with. So you can have a positive influence on people without being very close friends with that person. So you're protecting yourself from, you know, uh, their influence. But at the same time, like you're still able to be a good influence on them. If they come and ask you a question, you can answer it. You can through your integrity and through like the way that you conduct yourself, you can you can help them. Yeah, but we shouldn't, he's saying, don't go and befriend these people and these people are like your closest, you know, the closest people to you. Did I answer your question? For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins led away by various lusts. Okay, so um, the at the time, Gnosticism, right, the teachers of Gnosticism, um, they taught like all types of heresies, right? And they gained influence over the people. And one of the ways was to like convince women specifically and appeal to their lusts and their, their maybe loneliness or neediness and cause them to abandon their husbands and to follow this heretical teachings. That was actually one of the things that was happening. And one of the ways that the teachers, the false teachers were getting an influence on the Christian women was by like leading them away from from their husbands um, in order to accept these teachings. So he's saying ge this generally, right? These types of people who are who are doing this and teaching this and 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 living these deceptive lives are those who are um, you know influencing these gullible, gullible women who are willing to follow them um, and loaded down with sins, meaning that the women are like they're they are easily they they fall easily because they're they're maybe their 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 hearts are filled with lusts and w and their desires. Right, they are not like truly pursuing godliness, but they are led away by these various lusts. Always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, what do you think this? What does it mean? Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth.
Yes. If you think about the truth as the person of Christ, like you could fill your head with as much information as you want, but it doesn't mean that you're gonna going to get to know Christ in that way. Okay. So should we stop learning? We should continue learning. Even while like knowing scripture, they they weren't like they were closed off to the truth. So I think we should continue to learn, uh, but be open to, I guess, the words of God and open our hearts and our ears, like, to His teachings. Yes. So I mean, both of you, what you said is right. So, someone who is always learning can be placing the emphasis on the idea of knowledge, right? Like, like we want to gain knowledge and gaining knowledge is good but what does it mean to never come to the knowledge of the truth meaning i can learn all kinds of different information right but the truth is kind of like the the realization of what all of this means right like i can learn like i can memorize bible verses i can read stories from the bible i can and and maybe we teach all of our sunday school kids these things like from a young age but does that mean that now because they have like all the stories and Bible verses memorized that they understand the truth and how that truth should be manifested in their lives and what decisions that they need to take based on the truth that they now know? Like like there's a this disconnect between what we know and what we practice, right? So someone who is always learning um, is good, but only if you are applying. You know, I always like to say, that if we never learned anything new beyond what we already know, like we have what we need to know in order to become saints. You know, like if, if all you knew was like the very basic things, like the Ten Commandments, like if we lived like the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't sin. Like if we actually did live like the Ten Commandments, we, we wouldn't sin. The problem is not that we just don't know what the commandments are, right? Or we just we, we're not able to we're not able to live it. We're, we're not we're not able to apply it the, the way that we should. So we need to be careful about what is it that we are learning, and what is it, why is it that we are learning, and not to think that learning is a substitute for holiness. Holiness and learning are not the same thing. Learning can lead to holiness, but it doesn't. It's not the same thing as as holiness. In Ecclesiastes chapter twelve, um, King Solomon, kind of uh, in his conclusion of the book, okay. He says, he says what? He says, and, f and further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So even King Solomon, who was the, one of the wisest people who ever lived, he said, he said, in making many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Meaning, it is not the case that simply learning more is the answer. And there are some times where, like I've told people, stop reading books. The kind of books that you're reading are actually not beneficial for you. Focus more on like the spiritual things. Like, how do I grow in virtue? How do I overcome sin? How do I do Stop reading about the histories and the theologies and these things because sometimes those things can actually lead us in the wrong direction because we are not able to uh, to process it correctly okay 
So, so be careful what is it you are learning and for what purpose you seek to learn. And this is very important in the Orthodox Church because in the Orthodox Church, we always talk about how like we're very much about like knowledge, right? When we speak about ourselves as compared to maybe other churches, we say, well, you know, maybe these other churches, the reason they believe what they believe is because they lack knowledge. They don't understand how the early church believed and what is it that they should do and so on. And that's true. So I'm not saying that knowledge is not important. We have to have it. But once we have it, we can't just be content with it. We just say like, okay, because we have knowledge now, so I'm just content because I have knowledge, and that's what makes me orthodox, is because I have answers to questions, right? Is because I can answer questions, and I know the answers to these things, so that makes me orthodox. Orthodoxy is about living. You know, like if you heard the word orthopraxy, orthopraxy is like the, l the life of orthodoxy, the practical life, like praxis, like we say the book of Acts, it's called the praxis because it is the acts of the apostles. It is the work of the apostles. So orthopraxy is like the right work. Orthodoxy is the right way to worship or glorify God. Orthopraxy is the right way of living, right? So that is what saying is um, always learning, but learn with purpose. Don't read a book just to read a book. Don't read a book so you can give a lesson about a book. Read it to benefit from it and to live it in your life, and then... These are the people who, for them, the study is not going to be wearisome, but it'll actually be a source of salvation for them because they are applying it to themselves first before they are trying to teach it to someone else or before they are kind of filling their data banks with knowledge and information. Yes. There was a character in The Great Divorce where he was, like, he makes it to heaven and he's so like consumed by like what he's seeing and making sure other people know and the knowledge of everything that he gets back on the bus and goes back to hell. And it kind of reminded me of that where like he doesn't even realize that like everything he's been learning about, like he's in that presence and he's still consumed with spreading knowledge and the academia of it all. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly this, that's true. To the to the previous verse. Just yes. So I mean, yes, it is applying to the woman. I'm just trying to apply it like in a general way. Yeah. 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 Um, now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. Who is Janus and Jambres? Yes, so these are the, the the magicians that are referenced in the book of Exodus that are working for Pharaoh, that when Moses comes and he begins to show that he can perform these miracles to do the plagues, they are like trying to convince Pharaoh that what Moses is doing is no big deal because they can do it themselves, okay? And and the names of these men is not, are not mentioned in the book of Exodus, okay? But are mentioned here, and it was understood through the tradition, the Jewish tradition, that this these were who they were. Um, so th they're mentioned in Exodus 7, uh, verse 11. So this is one of the ways that we, we show that how, like, even in the Bible, there was tradition, right? Because the tradition here is that we're mentioning names of people who were never mentioned in the Bible, right, Be prior to this. Now in the Old Testament scriptures, their names are not mentioned, but there is this tradition and knowledge that this is, this is who um, they were. So here he's giving this example. He's saying, just as these men resisted, 
right? So do so do these also resist the truth. Why why do you think that he's mentioning these two men specifically? Because they witnessed God's power. It wasn't like they were ignorant. They saw everything God did through the plagues and they still like it's actual resistance because the truth was like right in front of them. Yeah, so one they witnessed what is it that 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 Moses was doing and two what else? They also made the claim that they can do the They same made thing. the claim that they could do it knowing very well that they couldn't. Right? Like they knew very well that what Moses was doing was beyond them. But all they cared about was what? The appearance. They just cared about Pharaoh and the people to believe that their power was equivalent to what Moses was doing, right? And so they, 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 they had the knowledge that was necessary in order for them to come to the truth, just like the Pharisees. They could see what Christ was doing, and they could conclude that he was the real thing. But because they cared more about their authority and their influence, they rejected him, right? They rejected him. So, so this is an example of people who like had this eyewitness um, experience with the truth and could have come to the knowledge of the truth and though they were very knowledgeable it did not help them to come to the knowledge of the truth the pharisees were very knowledgeable they didn't come to the knowledge of the truth these magicians were knowledgeable and they knew that what what you know it's, it's one thing if these men are, are deceiving the rest of the world and telling them oh yeah well we can do what these what moses is doing maybe everyone will believe them but they themselves should not believe themselves. They themselves know that what they're saying is a lie, and yet they are perpetuating the lie, and they are not um, accepting. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Okay, so meaning at the end, all the false teachers will be exposed. Okay, everyone is going to th see through the deceptions, and just as in the case of these two men, Moses eventually was doing these plagues that these magicians could not do, and it became obvious to everyone and to Pharaoh as well that Moses was greater than them and that God was greater than the gods of the Egyptians. Okay, It says in Exodus 9:11, referring to the sixth plague, which is of the boils that came on the skin of everyone, it says, And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and all the Egyptians. Right, like so, God demonstrated His authority and power over what was false. So, so, but it's just a matter of time of when it becomes clear. So sometimes the truth becomes clear earlier than 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 other times. Ultimately, um, when is all the truth going to be manifest? Of course, it's going to be at the second coming. At the second coming, at the sound of the trumpet, with Christ in the air and all the angels. That is the time when everyone, no one can deny the truth, okay? The, full tr the fullness of the truth. But prior to that, God reveals the truth, right? God reveals the truth. Um, and the stories, for instance, when we speak about like the martyrs in the church, when the martyrs um, remained faithful and refused to offer incense to the idols, and then they, the, 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 the governor or the emperor, whoever would want to start torturing them, Whenever he would start to torture them, the tortures wouldn't work. And he would harm them, and then God would heal them, right? It was a manifestation of the truth, right? That everyone could look and see, look, what, what, what's happening to these people 
like is is a declaration of what the truth is it is not it is not that like we can't just continue to be deceived by what the false prophets or the false priests or whatever are saying because we see in front of us the manifestation of the truth so anyone who sees the truth and this is like those who who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection they were eyewitnesses to the truth and that's why they believed and were willing even to be killed for the sake of the faith that they had because there was nothing that could change their mind they saw it with their own eyes right they saw the resurrection with their own eyes how can you deny it at that point you're not you're not listening to a secondhand account of it you are you are seeing it for for yourself so these people who are false teachers, while it appears that for a time they have some kind of success, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, right? Just as these Egyptian magicians. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. So speaking about St. Timothy, contrary to the false teachers, St. Timothy has followed the true faith, he received um, and learned the doctrine of Christ um, originally as a child through his mother and grandmother, but also through um, the words and actions of St. Paul. Um, so he learned not just the, the the theology, but it says he learned like the manner of life, like the way to live, not just information, but the way to live. And he committed his life to this faith because it gave him like it, it, like it was the truth and it gave him purpose, right? And he was called to be now um, a bishop. Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. So in addition to here what's listed as far as the purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, those are the things that, that he has followed and learned, right? He's also going to follow in the example of St. Paul in his persecutions and afflictions. And he's referencing the ones that happened to him in his first missionary journey um, in uh, Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, right? This is Lystra is where he was stoned, and this is where the Jews were chasing after him and fighting against him. So he's saying, all the things that I experienced, you also will experience, and he's using his own life um, as an example, okay? Ultimately, St. Timothy will be martyred in the year 97 AD. Um, uh, so he was a martyr, just as St. Paul, his, his teacher, was. And we commemorate him on the 23rd of Toba. This is what St. John Chrysostom says about this. It says, It is impossible for a person to live virtuously without being exposed to sadness or fatigue or temptation. How does a person avoid these if he wishes to walk in the narrow and hard way and hears that in the world he would face hardship in his days, Job said that the life of a man is a time of hard service. How much more do people suffer in these present times? Right? So, so if a person wishes to live in a godly way, then Christ said it is the narrow path. And the narrow path is one that is filled with various kinds of struggle, including persecutions. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And this is, again, like whenever we speak about discipleship, and what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, we have to understand, like, what does it mean? What is Christianity? Like, is Christianity all about only receiving um, blessings, like receiving comfort, receiving good things? Or is there also a sacrifice to be made? Is there also something that we have to offer our from ourselves to God? And the offering that we make to God should be a voluntary offering, right? It should be a voluntary offering. It should be something that we offer to God out of love, 
just as he offered himself to us out of love. Um, St. Augustine says, if you do not want to face difficulties, then you have not yet started to be a Christian. If you are not facing persecution or hardship for the sake of Jesus Christ, then be aware that you have not yet started to lead a life of purity in the Lord. Now, I want to emphasize what this is saying. A type of cross that we carry, right, is not just the cross of the persecution in the form of, like, people wanting to stone us, right? One of the crosses that we carry every day is the cross of fighting against the flesh, right? That's something that we fight every day. And that's something that we choose to fight every day because I am not content simply to live according to the flesh, but I discipline my flesh, right? Just as St. Paul said, I discipline my flesh. I discipline myself, lest when I have preached to others, I myself would be disqualified. So even though, like, um, you know, like in Ephesians chapter 6, when St. Paul is saying that our enemies are not flesh and blood, right? But they are the, the, the heavenly enemies, the, the principalities, the powers, the, 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 the hosts of wickedness, right? The spiritual enemies. Those are the ultimate enemies. And they are man those enemies manifest themselves in our lives in different ways. It can be manifested through the temptations we experience. It can be manifested through the actions of other people against us, right? But ultimately, it is a spiritual fight and it's a spiritual war. And so we fight that war on many fronts. And one of those fronts is not always dealing with the actions of other people toward us, but um, through just the spiritual warfare against our sinful desires. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Okay, so the deceptions of those of evil intent, right, is now one of the biggest issues that we face. You know, we find indoctrination, we find lies, we find all kinds of deception, um, and, and people who are fighting for the minds of the people, to, 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 to convince the people, to um, indoctrinate the people, to um, have them, to lead them away from the truth, right, according to everybody's doctrine of whatever it is that they want them to believe. And ultimately, this is Satan who is behind all of that. You know, Satan who is behind all of that. So, so some people who want to um, to talk about like groups of people in the world like you know have you heard of like the Illuminati you know like the Illuminati so it's like the Illuminati is like uh, has anyone not heard of the Illuminati you can explain what it is everyone knows what it is okay some people are embarrassed to say they don't know what it is so the Illuminati is supposed to be like this group of, of very powerful people that are behind the scenes controlling everything they control the world governments. They control all the banking. They they are controlling all the celebrities. They are the ones who place all of the world leaders into power. Nothing is actually what it seems, and all it is is behind the scenes. There's this very powerful group of people that are doing all of this. So you could say it's kind of like a conspiracy, right? And a lot of what is said about this group is happens. I mean, yes, there are, there's a lot of secrets and there are a lot of things that are not clear and there's a lot of things that are happening behind the scenes that people don't know about. But ultimately, the, peop the, per the one who is behind it all doesn't have to be like this cabal of secret men in a room somewhere controlling the world, right? It is, it is Satan himself who is the one behind all of it, right? He is the one who, who controls and deceives and, and affects everything that happens, right? So you speak about like evil men, and the people who are in the world that are evil, that are fighting against what is good and are, are trying to deceive everyone. Ultimately, it's Satan. Satan is the one who is who's behind it all. 
But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So again, he's referencing that St. Timothy was raised in a godly household by his mother and his grandmother, right? So, so the things that he has known from his childhood, he learned from them, right? And he should be confirmed in the faith. He should remember the source of, of where he learned it. You know, when, whenever we are questioning, um, you know, maybe um, some, some doctrine or some teaching that we have, one thing to remember is who taught it to me, right? And this person who taught it to me, are they, um, are they uh, faithful? Are they wise? Are they knowledgeable? Are they um, reliable source of truth or not? So when we, when we say, well, when we go to the Bible, for instance, I mean, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is a reliable source of truth. So when we have a question about the truth, we turn to the scriptures and we say, this is what the Bible says. And the Bible is like the definitive source of truth, right? So when we have a question about something, if we can go back to a definitive source and say, I learned it from this person whom I trust, who I believe is teaching me the truth, that helps us to deal with like being entrenched with all these deceptions, right, that are that are everywhere around us and to, to, to help respond to the doubts that maybe would develop in us because of all these different ideas, right? So here he's saying, remember, right, you continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them, right? Knowing, knowing that the sources of your, of, your, of your teaching were reliable and good, whether it be his family or whether it be St. Paul himself, right? And, 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 and that you have known the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. <coughs> and then finally, this is the last verse of the chapter. He says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so we can ask the question, what does it mean for scripture to be inspired by God? It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. What does it mean? Each author. So the Holy Spirit, like he did not dictate what each writer, like what, what each author would write, but the content of the writing is as what the Holy Spirit has inspired. But you still see like like the personality uh, of each and like the characteristics of each author, like St. Luke is a physician, so he writes more intricately in comparison to like St. Matthew or the other synoptic gospels. Um, I, I guess that would be my answer. Yes, so that is that is what we believe, right? We believe in the church, and there's different theories about what inspiration is, but in the church we believe that inspiration is exactly as you said. It is the message is inspired, the exact words that are used are without without flaw, but they are the words of the person, right? Each person has rights with a different style. They are the, the, the God did not overwrite the personality of the writer who's writing, but whatever message was given is a message that is coming from God, okay? And so that's what it means that the scripture is inspired and it means that it's also infallible. So we turn to the scripture with that understanding of its infallibility, Right, because again, here when Saint Paul is the, the whole reason Saint Paul is even writing this verse to Saint Timothy is essentially telling him that Scripture is a reliable source of truth for you to turn to. Okay, 
And so this is why he's saying, yeah. Abuna, um, um, some of our sister, sister churches have books in the Bible that we don't have. How, uh, and you mentioned uh, in your talk today that, uh, that um, the Bible is the basis of our teaching. So how can we be a sister church to a church that has different ideas about which books of the Bible should be there? So it is true, the, the original books um, that were considered to be part of the Bible um, at, the, at the very beginning were referenced in a letter um, that St. Athanasius wrote and that had been confirmed in various councils. And those were the books that from the very beginning were considered to be canonical in the church. Some other churches chose to add other books like the Eritrean and Ethiopian church. For instance, they have the Book of Enoch, um, the Eastern Orthodox, which were not our sister churches, but they're also Orthodox. They add like the Third and Fourth Maccabees. Um, there's Esdras, uh, there's uh, um, Shepherd of Hermes was not a part of the Bible, but it's uh, I don't think they. But it's considered like it's a, it's a book that we read it too, but it's not considered like canonical. I think. Um, so, all all of these, um, like, how is it even that we know of what is inspired? Like, God did not come and say, "Here is a list of all of the books that are inspired," right? It is something that developed over time where the church acknowledged that these letters and these books that had been written are, um, are, are, are the truth written by the Holy Spirit. Now, just like anything in the church, there could be different people that have different opinions. But the thing that's important is that even these other books that we maybe read that we don't consider to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, we don't consider them to be contradicting the Scripture. It's not like they're filled with things contrary to the scripture. And actually, many of the books, we, we do read them, and we find like they're edifying for us. But the idea of elevating a book to the level of being uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit means that we believe it is completely without flaw. And that's a high standard, right? Like a high standard. Like it's not the author of that book is not the person. The author of the book is the Holy Spirit. So we, we, we hesitate to go beyond any of the books that have been identified, right? But at the same time, if there's another church that believes that something else was inspired by the Holy Spirit, we're not against that for them. Like, it's okay if that's what they believe. Um, it doesn't, it's because, because ultimately the beliefs that are expressed in that book are not contradicting the scripture, right? Like you, for instance, you could have like a book, one of like the books written by like Pope Shunda, for instance. Very good book without any mistakes or flaws or any in anything, right? But we don't consider it inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we will read it, and we will praise it, and we will benefit from it. Um, so the scripture that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, it says profitable for doctrine. So doctrine is like teaching, right? Like, like teaching, like theology. How is it that we understand God? How is it that we understand salvation? How do we understand what God wants us to do? Okay, this is one thing. For correction, meaning it is a source of rebuke. Meaning when I read it, I compare myself to it. I say, am I living according to it or not? Right? And in that way, it rebukes me. Okay? Um, uh, and uh, uh, re reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness. How do I live a righteous life? Okay, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it is it is through it that we find how we can be, become like completely like uh, like a righteous person. 
And so, yes, we believe that the, the scripture is inspired by God and for all of these reasons, and, and that includes the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's also here mentioned by St. Paul to St. Timothy as being where is the reliable source that we go to in order to um, receive instruction for how to live godly in this world. Again, if we go back to the very first verse of the chapter, speaking about we are in, the, in the, these perilous times where all these bad things are happening, how do we keep ourselves pure from falling into this? Well, it is through um, the scripture. So at the time that this is written, the Bible hadn't been compiled yet. So the scripture is considered anything that was written by God. So it would, so here it would very much apply to the Old Testament. But the concept of this verse, like the idea of the verse, would also apply to the New Testament, even though the New Testament at this point hadn't been written yet or, or hadn't been compiled yet. Okay. Any final questions before we conclude? Yeah. Um. So you said scripture is infallible. Um, do we also believe that tradition is infallible? So tradition, what it, it depends on when, when you speak about tradition. What is tradition? So in, in one definition you can say about tradition is that tradition is the teachings of Christ that were passed down through the apostles, never recorded in the Bible. Right? Because when we speak about tradition, Traditions are things that were established in the early church that were agreed upon to be the, the teachings of Christ but had never been recorded in the Bible. Yes? So if it's the teachings from Christ, then it is infallible. Like, hmm? Yes. Okay, so there's other things that we could consider tradition that were established or believed on in the church that weren't necessarily maybe directly stated by Christ, okay? And there's also some things about holy tradition that are not salvific. Like, for instance, it is according to the holy tradition of the church, for instance, the seating arrangement of the church. When you say men on one side and women on the other side, that is part of holy tradition because it is something that was from the church from the very beginning and that was practiced from the very beginning and therefore was for a certain purpose, right? That's not something salvific. That's not something that if a church chooses not to do that, that that means like, okay, so is that infallible or not? Like, I hesitate to use the word infallible to describe something like that, right? But if you speak about teaching and doctrine, then yes, then we believe it is infallible. There's other things about holy tradition that were established in councils, for instance, right? Um, we believe that the outcome of like the ecumenical councils is infallible but even that you have to be careful right because there are certain things about the ecumenical councils that we may not even agree with right like well, there is there is like in the council of constantinople there is a canon that came out of it that the that the coptic church rejected and it had to do with the primacy of rome right we rejected it so it's a ecumenical council and we agree with all the other stuff but when it comes to that we're like no so, like, there you go. So you uh, open a can of worms. Wait. Mm. Okay, so then also connecting to Fetty's question, right? There are things that we talk about, like, in our hymns and prayers that are not in the Bible, like St. Mary's parents. They're never named in the Bible. So then the source of those names 
why are they not like whatever book or whatnot that that came from why is that not also in the canon the book that had recorded or the names I, of I saint mary's parents i don't know where that came from right but whatever that source is if it's a book why is that not canon uh, i mean the the not every book that has true things in it is inspired by the holy spirit you know like like the names of the parents of saint mary it's like okay well i mean is that is that something that requires is that something that requires inspiration by the holy spirit i mean I, like i mean i don't know like I, I i can't i can't speak to every single book and to tell you why this book was or was not included in the canon of scripture i, I don't know but 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 i want to emphasize that not everything that is true has to be inspired by the holy spirit there can be things that are true like the names of people right that are not inspired by the holy spirit yes like like for instance i can say what are the names of all of the patriarchs and the coptic church from the beginning right there's a list of names and how do we know those names well according to the tradition it's passed down that here are all of the patriarchs from the beginning all the way up until now right so that's true but there is no book that is inspired by the holy spirit that has those names written in them okay Well, so that's the thing, right? So when you say all the scripture is inspired by God, but when you read the scripture, different people interpret it, what it means differently. And that is what the holy tradition is about. The holy tradition includes the way to interpret the scripture, to understand its meaning, right? So in, you know, in the Protestant Reformation, with the introduction of the sola scriptura, the idea that everyone can interpret the scripture for themselves, right? So that became like, okay, yeah, all scripture is inspired by God, but I am the one given the full authority to interpret what that means on my own, right? And Martin Luther believed that everyone who was authentic and sincere reading the Bible would come to the same conclusion. But very quickly that fell apart. So, so like the idea that the scripture is inspired is good, there are, but there are things that I need to know in order to interpret it correctly, and that is part of what holy tradition is. Part of holy tradition is the, the, the understanding, the interpretation of the scripture. So when we go to the early church, for instance, like we have a verse we don't understand, like what it means, and somebody says this, somebody says this. Like, uh, again, we always go back to John chapter 6, like about communion. Many, many churches, very different opinions about what all that is, right? But when you go to the tradition of the church, when you go to the writings of the early fathers, when you go to what the actually the church practiced in the first century, absolutely every single church believed that it was the body and blood of Christ. Absolutely every church had communion in the church, right? And that was a common understanding. So if 
that was something that wasn't like completely clear and understood by the early church, then you would at least have some churches be like, no, I don't think that's what it is. But it, because it was a teaching of Christ that was taught, not just in the Bible, but like in as recorded in the Bible, but in many other ways that are not recorded, right? The entire church had the same view and belief about it. Or the confession to priests, which in the New Testament, there isn't a verse that says you must confess your sins to a priest. But every single church father, when you read many, many, many quotes all about the confession, all was all understood that that's what was the practice, right? So, so if you were to read, you know, the, the verse when Christ is saying to the apostles, receive the Holy Spirit, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. So in the church, we, in the Orthodox church, we understand that to mean a certain thing. Right? Maybe other churches, you point out that that verse to them, and they're like, "Oh, that's not what we think it means," because they interpret it differently. So, who's the arbiter to decide what does it actually mean? Well, that's when you go to the early church and you say, "What does the church father say? What did the early church practice?" And that's the answer to the question. So that's how the holy tradition answers the question of what does the scripture mean beyond just the words of the scripture. Yes, yes, because the apostles learned, I mean, imagine, like, writing things down in the first century was not easy. It was not easy to write things and disseminate information through written form in the first century. So imagine the amount of teachings over three years that Christ taught. Like, all you, ha like, you think about what the Gospels, the Gospels are extremely short. First of all, there's a lot of repetition in them, right? So if you actually take all of the unique things that were recorded in the in the gospels which are the eyewitness accounts of what christ actually did and said they're ex extremely short compared to three years of everything that he would have said and done and the last chapter of john says if everything he would have said and done would be recorded there wouldn't be enough space in the world for all the books that would be written so imagine how much there is beyond just what we have and all of that is reflected because the apostles were the ones who heard it from Christ. It's kind of like the priests hear from Sayyidina. Sayyidina sends us a message or he tells us, hey, I want you to do, you know, something. And then suddenly all the churches in the world or all the churches in the diocese start doing that thing. It's like, well, where is that written? Well, you don't know. I mean, he's told, he told us, right? He told us to do it, right? So imagine like Christ is telling all of the apostles all this stuff that they need to do and they need to teach and they need to establish and what the church needs to do and so that all of the churches that were established across the entire world all practiced and believed the same. And if that thing that they believed was not like 100% crystal clear in the letters and the gospels, well then how did they come to that understanding of it? It's because they received it from Christ. Okay, any other comments? John? Won't be long. Uh, my <laughs> one question is That's if <laughs> if we if we rejected uh, like an aspect of or like a decision made in a council, what what do the rest of the Oriental Orthodox churches say? Um, I believe that we were not the only ones that rejected that. 
I mean, the only two standing Oriental churches were us and the Church of Antioch, correct? Well, the Church of Antioch, actually, there's both a Chalcedonian and a non-Chalcedonian, right? came out of that. Um, uh, To be honest, I don't know the stance of every church on that canon. Um, about the primacy of Rome, I, I don't know. I know, I know that on what bec- I know that on the Chalcedonian side, I want to say everybody accepted it, um, but I don't know who else rejected it other than us. Can I dig a little deeper? Sure. <laughs> what is wh- what's the reason for uh, this? Is a rabbit hole, but what's the reason for the primacy of Rome? They say that because Saint Peter. Uh, founded the Church of Rome, which is uh, is questionable at times. But St. Peter also founded the Church of Antioch. So why does Antioch not have that claim? Well, that's our response, right? So uh, that, that so their their claim their claim well th- that the that the claim at yeah. the beginning was because Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, and the Rome and so it was an imperial city. So it was a very very important city. And it was a city where there would be a lot of councils that would be held and a lot of meetings, and, and it, was, it was a very important city. Mm. So they said that because of that, that Rome should become like the, like, like have primacy among all the churches. And then later on, when Constantinople became the capital of the West, mm. Constantinople wanted also that they would have primacy. Mm. Okay? So, so it became like, you know, political. And so our our view was that this is not what like th- this political aspect of the councils and who's prime has primacy who doesn't have primacy that's not that's not like we don't we re- we reject that because all the apostles were equal including Saint Peter right um, and and then yes later on when they came and they said um, you know the Catholic Church is the head of all churches because Peter was the head of the apostles and we rejected that. Um, and also we rejected the idea that Peter was the one who founded the Church of Rome to begin with, and as you said, he also founded the Church of Antioch, so why Rome and not Antioch? So all those things that we respond, but uh, yeah. Cool, thanks. Any other? Okay, we can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O God, that you help us to read your scripture, not just to fill our minds with knowledge and and information, but that we would apply it in our lives, and that we would live godly lives that are pleasing to you. Strengthen us and help us, and keep us, O Lord, from drowning in the sea of confusion and deception that we find around us in the world, and help us to be remain faithful both in, in, in our inner life, in our spiritual lives, that is manifested also in the outward life that we live and the way that we are seen by the world to be a light to them so they would see our, our good works and glorify you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints here, as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And I'll show you your spirit.